So as we continue to dig in on this theme of uh, freedom in Christ or living in liberty, uh, we're going to look this morning at the fourth step to freedom in Christ, rebellion versus submission, which deals with the ramifications of rebellion in our lives. Negative ramifications of rebellion, positive ramifications of submission. In other words, it defines for us this fourth step and identifies uh, what the nature of rebellion is from God's perspective. And we talked about this last week, really. By way of introduction, I, I began to explain um, you know, that rebellion is often seen or viewed as a positive thing, not a negative thing. And many people, particularly young people in our society, uh, think mistakenly that to be rebellious is good, not bad. So we have to talk about this. We have to get to the bottom of it. And um, I want to share, by way of illustration, a little quote and story um, from author Beth Moore this morning. Um, She she wrote a a great workbook um, called Breaking Free. And uh, there's an illustration here. She's commenting, actually, on a passage of Scripture from Isaiah and giving some background to the book of Isaiah. And uh, then she tells a little story to illustrate from her own experience as a parent. So listen closely. She says, Isaiah addresses the dual theme of captivity and liberty more than any other Old Testament book. God didn't leave his nation wondering why they had gone into captivity. Their folly echoes through much of the first 40 chapters of Isaiah. Not coincidentally, Isaiah has more to say about the authority, rule, and uniqueness of God than virtually any book of the Bible. Allowing God to engrave his truth on, allow God to engrave his truth on your heart. Liberty and authority will always go hand in hand. During the ministry of Isaiah, captivity was imminent for the children of Israel because they had a serious authority problem. In essence, God was saying, you've got things turned around. Let's get this straight. Me, God, you, human. Me, creator, you, creature. Me, potter, you, clay. You, obey. Not for my good, but for yours. And then here's the story she shares to illustrate this principle. She says, my adorable youngest daughter came into the world to take over. By the time she was only two years old, she liked to walk ahead of the rest of us so that she could appear to have come by herself. Imagine that. She was born authoritative And she seemed to assume that she, Keith, and I were all three on the same level. Keith and I expended no small amount of energy underscoring our authority over her, the penalty for rebellion, and the safety and blessing of obedience. We haven't always done it right, but we've done it often. At this particular season, we are now reaping a delightful harvest. Melissa is a wonderful young woman, 
But if I had a dime for every time that I said to her, me, parent, you, child, she would inherit a fortune. Over and over in the book of Isaiah, God perfectly underscores this same principle. I share that with you because it's comical, and yet I think all of us, particularly those of us who are parents, can relate in some measure to the challenge of teaching this principle of submission and authority to our own children. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go uh, on into the study this morning. But let me begin by just taking you back to to what we started with last Sunday. I want to just very quickly review uh, the points that I made last week because it's really foundational. And again, I know that many of you, you know, people have been kind of coming and going over the summer months. And so if you weren't here or haven't had an opportunity to listen to last week's message on the podcast, it might be helpful just to have this basic framework in mind. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But just um, bear with me for a moment if I, as we review uh, some ground that we covered last Sunday. So here's the foundation, right? And we find this right out of the gate in verse 1. Here's the foundation that Paul is trying to establish in Romans 13. What he's communicating essentially is that authority is God-given and it's a vital characteristic of leadership which is intended for the governing of our social lives. Okay, now think about the different parts of that statement. We all live in a social environment. None of us are an island unto ourselves. None of us live completely alone and isolated from every other human being. We all live in relationship with other people. It's a social world that we live in. And in that social world, full of different types of relationships, there are people who've been given leadership. And as a function of leadership, one of the things that they, that they exercise is what we call authority. Authority. Yeah, well, okay, that's, that's a different subject. But um, yes, there is corruption in leadership. Um, but there's also, I mean, whether leadership is exercised in a good way or in a corrupt way, there's authority that comes with leadership. That's my basic point here. And that authority, Paul says, comes from God. So no matter what role of authority or leadership a person serves in, they have been given in that role a certain measure of authority from God to lead. Okay? And so then what we talked about is that there are five different realms of relationship where authority is practiced, where authority is exercised, where leadership is exercised with authority. Okay, the first one, of course, the most obvious one, is God's authority. We're in relationship with God, right? As as we just heard from Beth Moore, right? Um, God is the creator and we are the creature. He's, He's God and we are human. He's the potter, we're the clay, right? So we have to understand our place in that relationship and the authority that God has to direct our behavior. There's a place, and that's the beginning, right, of all this, right? You can't can't respect or respond to the authority of another person if you don't begin with understanding the authority that God himself has because all other authority is delegated from him. So then there are four other areas, and these are all human relationships or human realms in which leadership and authority are exercised. The first one is civil authority. In other words, this has to do with government officials, 
from the president all the way down to your local police officer. People that work on behalf of the government in one of those roles, a variety of different roles, you know, whether it's a um, city council member or uh, a, a representative or senator or a judge, all of those kind of people operate in the realm of civil authority. And they have a measure of authority that they've been granted by God to serve in those roles. Then secondarily, there's the realm of social authority. Social authority is the realm of um, the workplace, right? If you've ever had a job, then you know what it means to have a boss, I presume, right? So the boss, of course, carries a certain measure of authority in his role over those that he's leading as employees. If the boss says jump, then most of the time you should jump, right? Because it's the boss, right? Whether it's he or she, whoever it may be, if the boss instructs you to do something and you don't follow the boss, you don't honor the boss, you don't respect the boss's authority, guess what? You're not going to have that job very long, right? So that's a, that's a position of authority. Now, there are other examples here too. A teacher has authority over their classroom. A coach has authority over their team. The coach says, this is today's workout. The athlete doesn't say, well, I don't feel like doing that. I'm going to do this instead. No, the athlete says, okay, this is what we're going to do. You're the coach. I'm the player. Right? So social authority includes the realm of teachers, coaches, employers, bosses, all those types of relationships in which people carry a measure of leadership and authority that's meant to serve the good of those underneath that leadership or authority. The third realm, or the fourth realm, I'm sorry, is familial authority. So God has designed the family to work in the same manner as all these other social structures, right? This is the way relationships work by God's design. So in the family, right, parents have leadership and authority over their children. At least that's the way it's meant to work. It doesn't always work that way, but that's the way God's designed the family to work. Um, and obviously, in the relationship between husbands and wives, there's uh, godly authority that's granted as well. And then spiritual authority is the last one, number five, and that's the realm of pastors, elders, ministry leaders, right? If you're, if you're serving on a team, like, for example, let's just say, okay, uh, I'm going to be real specific here. Gavin's playing bass on the team this morning. Elise is leading worship, right? Well, Elise is leading, which carries with it a certain measure of authority for Elise to say, Gavin, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to play. And it would be inappropriate for Gavin as the bass player to say, well, no, I don't really feel like playing that. I think I'm going to play this instead, right? So in that role, you would never do that. I understand, right? I just... <laughs> I'm just saying, hypothetically, it could happen, right? Um, so what, I'm, what I want you to recognize is that in each of these five different realms, our relationship with God, our, our relationship with civil authorities, our relationship with social authorities, our relationship to family authorities, and our relationship to spiritual authorities, authority is given by God. It comes from him. It was his idea. It's by his design that society works this way, okay? So for each of these areas of authority then, which are given by God, um, we have to recognize that those in leadership who carry authority 
do so as an extension of God's authority because he's the one who's delegated it to them. All right? And this is important because it reminds us then that God has ultimate authority over all creation. But he delegates his authority to certain people who have an important role to play in our lives. And if we don't submit to that authority, if we don't honor and respect that authority, we get ourselves into trouble. We have problems, right? Think of what Jesus said when he, in in his famous last words to the disciples before he uh, ascended into heaven, right? This is from the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 18. Do you remember how it begins? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It all starts with Jesus. All authority has been given to him. Every other authority is meant to be submitted to him and comes from him. Now, here it might be helpful to notice that according to Paul's words in Romans 13, the exercise of godly authority is meant to serve two specific purposes in our lives. Think about this. Look with me at verses 3 and 4, Romans 13, 3 and 4. For rulers, Paul says, hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now look closely at those words. Think closely about what you just heard me read. Um, And you'll recognize actually that Paul repeats a phrase twice in the context of those verses. The phrase that he repeats is God's servants. On the first hand, or in the first case, Leaders with authority are God's servants for our good. And on the second, in the second case, they are God's servants as agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Or in other words, to exercise discipline, right? So what Paul's explaining here, essentially, in verse 4, is that the specific purposes that authority is meant to serve in our lives are for our good, for our blessing, and for our discipline which is actually for our good and for our blessing too. But the point being this, right? An authority is designated to set boundaries, to give guidance. Think of them as, in some cases, rules, in some cases, directions, in some cases, boundaries. Whatever rule, whatever word is most helpful for you to consider, the purpose of an authority, of a godly authority, is to set good and godly boundaries for the behavior of those under their leadership, okay? That's for our good. That's for our benefit. That's for our blessing. It's to help us do the right thing. Now, what happens then if we don't follow those boundaries? We get in trouble with the authority. And if we get in trouble with the authority, then the authority is responsible to discipline those under their leadership for not following the rules, not doing what they were meant to do, right? So those are the two purposes. It's to set good and godly boundaries and then to discipline those who don't follow the good and godly boundaries. 
Those are the two basic purposes for which God gives authority. And notice again, what Paul says is that every person in leadership who's been given authority by nature of the role that they play is meant to serve in that role as God's servant. Think about that. So, his desire, his intention, his purpose is that every person with authority would recognize that they are under authority. You know where we run into problems with this? When we have a boss who doesn't recognize that God is their boss. Where we run into problems with this, uh, with this is when people operate in authority, but they're not under authority, right? And so if you have a, a leader in whatever role we're talking about here, if you have a leader who doesn't recognize that they are God's servant, then they will be likely to abuse their authority over you. The whole key to this, operating the way that God's designed it to, is that every leader with authority would recognize themselves as God's servant, which means that they are under his authority. So that's the backdrop. That's kind of by way of review here, what we, call, what we covered last Sunday. Let me take you on now here, because what I really want to do with you this morning, with the time we have left, is to talk about the difference between rebellion and submission. Because really, there's only two choices. When you're in relationship to someone that carries authority, you have to choose, am I going to rebel against that authority, or am I going to submit to it? Which one is it? What's it going to be? You can't really be ambivalent. Ambivalence is rebellion, (laughs) okay? Anything other than submission with honor is rebellion. There's only two sides to the coin. And think of it that way. I think it's actually helpful to think of rebellion and submission of flip sides of the same coin because they always go together. In fact, think of it like this, right? Anytime that you're rebelling against an authority you're actually submitting to another authority, okay? You can't rebel and not submit at the same time. The question is, who are you submitting to, right? So, for example, if you're rebelling against God, you're submitting to the devil, right? If you're rebelling against your boss in the workplace, who are you submitting to? Well, you might be submitting to the devil, You might just be submitting to yourself as the supreme authority, right? Well, I don't want to do what he told me to do, so I'm going to do what I want to do instead. You're you're making yourself the boss, right? You're submitting to your own desire instead of to the instruction of your boss. So there's always submission and rebellion in this sense always go together. They're flip sides of the same coin. You can't rebel against an authority without submitting to another authority at the same time important for us to recognize. So let's talk about rebellion and what it is from a biblical viewpoint. Here's my definition. And again, this is based on not just on Romans 13, but on other passages as well. We'll take a look at a few in just a moment. Rebellion is any attitude or action that reflects a mindset of mistrust toward authority and a fear of yielding control to others, which produces the fruit of disobedience. Okay, that's a little bit complicated definition, so let's break it down. 
into its, uh, its parts. Rebellion is an attitude or action, right? It starts with how you think. It starts as a mindset, but that mindset typically then gets expressed as an action. So it's a mindset. What's behind the mindset? Mistrust toward authority or fear, or maybe some combination of both. Maybe you don't trust your boss uh, to tell you to do the right thing or to, uh, to do something that um, would be good or whatever that you would want to do. And uh, maybe you have a fear of being controlled by someone else. Even in the home, right? Children can mistrust the authority of their parents or they can fear being controlled by their parents. They can you know, reject the concept or the principle that parents should be allowed to tell them what they're supposed to do. So, in, in either case, whether it's an attitude or it's gone to the point of being expressed as an action, this mistrust and fear toward those in authority ends up, in the end, producing the fruit of disobedience to the authority. That's the fruit of rebellion, disobedience. So, let me give you a little example, right? And this is meant to be slightly humorous, and I, I'm not going to name anybody, but um, just having a little fun. I, 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 I live in a family full of kids, and um, some of those kids are not yet old enough to drive the car, but they really wish they were, okay? And uh, they know who they are, and um, the, I'm not going to name anybody, but, but the point is, right, there's, a, there's this desperate desire to be able to drive the car, and... Um, I have to say, well, I'm sorry, but the, the law doesn't allow for that, right? You can't drive until you've gone through driver's training, and once you've received a license, then you'll be allowed to drive the car. Now, I offer you that not just as a, as a comical um, insight into the dynamics of our family, but specifically as an analogy, right? Think of driving the car, think of being in the driver's seat as an analogy for being in authority or control over where the vehicle goes, okay? The person in the driver's seat of a vehicle is ultimately responsible for where the vehicle goes. They are the one in the position of authority. All those in the vehicle have to trust the driver to use that authority wisely and to get them where they need to go. And I would suggest to you that the same can be said of every social entity that we are a part of, whether it's the family or the workplace or the church or the government, city, state, you know, national, every social entity that we are a part of functions in the same way. There has to be somebody in the driver's seat who is the designated driver, the authority, who determines where things are meant to go. Now, they can do that, of course, in collaboration with other passengers, but every organization needs a leader. That's the way God's designed things to work. Somebody has to be behind the wheel. Somebody has to be in the driver's seat. Rebellion is the act of trying to take the wheel when you're not in the right seat. Generally speaking, this is not a good or godly thing to do unless the driver has become incapacitated or is moving the vehicle in a dangerous direction, it is not helpful 
to try to take control of the wheel if you're not in the driver's seat. So think about the words that Paul uses in Romans 13. Romans 13, verse 2. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority that God has placed is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. That's pretty clear. It's a pretty plain warning from the Apostle Paul about the importance of submission. Now, let me give you an example, uh, a biblical illustration of this. And perhaps it's, um, I mean, there are lots of examples, actually, of rebellion and submission that we could look at throughout Scripture. But this is one of my favorites because it had such a huge impact on the history of the nation of Israel. And it's really a centerpiece story of the Old Testament. It's the story of King Saul's rebellion. Are you familiar with this? Maybe you'll remember. It's from 1 Samuel 15. And uh, in this case, Saul, the first king of Israel, is confronted by the prophet Samuel. And he's confronted specifically for his rebellion against God. And you know the outcome of the story, right? King Saul was essentially removed from power. He lost the blessing and favor of God on his role as king of Israel because he was rebellious toward God. He was not submitted to God's authority. Here's how the story goes. 1 Samuel 15, 12 to 26. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor, insightful, and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Not. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? You can kind of imagine, you know, just listen closely. Imagine the bleeding and the lowing. Saul answered, Well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, you did, not, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did. I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me, I completely destroyed the Amalekites, and I brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Interesting, isn't it, that it's the Lord your God, not the Lord my God? But Samuel replied, 
Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obedience? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion, listen to this, rebellion is like the sin of divination. That's witchcraft. Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. These are Samuel's words to Saul. Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft and arrogance like the evil of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. Whoa! And then listen to this. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. That was the result of rebellion in the life of King Saul. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Pretty harsh punishment on King Saul because of his rebellion. But what I want you to think about here is the dynamic at play, right? What was it that led to Saul's act of rebellion? Let me, at the risk of um, being a little silly here, let me try to maybe put this in my own words for you, right? Maybe it would have sounded something like this. Saul's trying to justify his behavior. Come on, Sammy. It's all good. It's okay. It's not really that bad. Come on, Sam, I am. Don't push your green eggs and ham on me. I know you told me to destroy all the Amalekites and their stuff, but that would have been wasteful. I mean, my boys were looking at me like, hey, boss, this is some nice loot they left behind. Why should we destroy it? Why don't we keep some? Why don't you let us have some of it instead of just burning it all? So I thought, well, all righty then. Let's take it with us. Just be sure to tithe on it. Then it's okay. As long as we give some of it back to God, he should be okay with our little change of plans. You see the mindset here. This is not just disobedience. As Samuel indicates, it's arrogance, right? Because Saul essentially is placing his own desire and plan above God's desire and plan. He's placing himself in authority over God. That's the essence of rebellion. It's the idea, essentially, the mindset that we know better. We know better than God. We know better than our boss. We know better than our parent. We know better than our pastor. We know better than our governor. We know better than our president. We know better. We don't have to do what they tell us because we know better. So Samuel's rebuke is a very serious word 
essentially equating rebellion with witchcraft. Think about this. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. And the point was and is that there's a price to pay for this, right? You can't enter into this kind of rebellion without becoming subject to discipline or punishment. For King Saul, the price was losing God's favor and blessing on his role as king. Like Samuel in this instance, Paul in Romans 13 makes it very clear that rebellion against any authority is essentially rebellion against God, and it comes with consequences because God is the one who's instituted that authority. Such rebellion will only bring upon us the fear of punishment by those in authority and ultimately even by God himself. Now, what in the world draws someone into this kind of mindset of idolatry? Well, let me, let me make it clear. Let me go back to what I told you earlier, right? In the spirit realm, rebellion against God is submission to the enemy of God. This is about spiritual warfare. This is about recognizing the reality that there are two rulers. They're not equal in authority or power. God is the greater of the two, of course. But the devil has real power, real authority that he's been given or that he has for a season anyway. And he wants people to submit to his authority instead of God's. That's the very essence of the story of sin in human history. So we're drawn, recognize the reality here, that we are drawn into a mindset and into the actions of rebellion by the author and instigator of rebellion, the devil, who wants to perpetuate the lie that God cannot be trusted as the ultimate authority in our lives. That's what it amounts to. When we don't trust God's authority, then we are naturally more susceptible to rejecting all other realms of spiritual authority or authority, um, societal authority, placed by God in our lives for our own blessing and benefit. So whenever we rebel against those God-given authorities, we're actually following in the footsteps of the devil himself and submitting ourselves to him. That's the reality of what's happening. The devil is the inventor of rebellion, and he is its chief instigator in our lives. Now, as I've indicated, um, uh, one of the realms, right, where this gets lived out on a daily basis is the, the realm of parenting. And, you know, I'm, I don't want to tweak too hard on that. I don't want any of the kids in here to feel like I'm picking on them or anything, but... but this is one of the most difficult and yet one of the most important realms in which we have to learn how to respect and honor and obey authority, right? You guys are going to talk about that, I, I trust, this fall a little bit, huh? Right? So if you have any questions, go talk to Gerald and Carrie. Don't come to me. <laughs> and seriously, um, what I want you to recognize, parents, is that you should be encouraged to hold the line. If you set a boundary, don't let your kids challenge it. Don't let your kids make you talk you into changing it or shifting it, right? You ever have this happen, right? You, you set a boundary, like, like in our family, a common one is 
how much time is too much time watching TV or being on the computer or playing video games on the phone or whatever? How much time is too much time? Should there even be a limit? I mean, if it were up to every kid to decide, there would be no limit, right? But we as parents in authority over our households understand the wisdom that there should be a limit on these things. You can't just play video games all day and expect to turn out as a good person, right? So, so we set a limit. And I don't know about the rest of you, but every once in a while when we set a limit like this in our house, it doesn't get met with a, yes, mom, yes, dad. It gets met with a, with a comeback, right? Why? Why do, why do I have to do that? But, 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 you know, anybody relate here? And let me just tell you, right? Everybody's always over the years kind of joked about the standard answer. Because I said so. Actually, that's a pretty good answer. <laughs> right? Because what we're meant to teach our children as parents is to respect and honor authority. So even if you don't have a better reason, that reason is a pretty good one. Now, hopefully you do normally have another reason too, right? We don't just, you know, boss our kids around and tell them to do whatever we want them to do for our own benefit. They're not our slaves. They're our children. But the point is, because I said so, is an expression of, godly authority in some circumstances. Now, little heart check for all of you here before I close this up with one more point about submission. I want you to be aware of the fact, whether it's in the family or in the workplace or in the church or whatever, sometimes a person's draw toward rebellion can be fueled by the experience of ungodly authority in their lives. Think about this dynamic right? If you have an ungodly authority, if you have a parent that abused their role as parent and made you, you know, kind of treated you as a slave, even though you were their child, and made you do things for their own, you know, whatever, benefit, or if there was cruelty there, if there was exasperation, if there was, or even in the workplace, right? If you have a boss that exercises their authority by asking you to do something immoral or ungodly, or forces you to submit to something, you know, that's for their own pleasure, that creates in us a mistrust toward authority and a tendency toward rebellion. So sometimes we have to search our hearts. We have to search our our history. We have to kind of, you know, invite the Lord to take us back and and ask the question, Lord, is is there some experience in my past that has created in me a mindset of rebellion because someone misused their authority over me. If you want healing and freedom, you have to be willing to look at things like that and, and check your own heart before the Lord. Ask the question, if you, if you recognize in yourself a tendency toward a rebellious mindset, ask the Lord to show you where that came from. It's important to be honest about those experiences and how they impact our thinking and our feelings. Now, another thing that's helpful here to recognize, right, is that as we're talking about the ungodly use of authority, um, even in the family, right, there's a balance in Scripture. God doesn't say, children, obey your parents no matter what they tell you to do in all circumstances 
What's interesting is he says, children, obey your parents, honor your parents, submit to your parents. And then right away, Paul follows that up with the statement, fathers, do not exasperate your children. I mean, why would he do this? Well, because as parents, if we exasperate our children, we're undermining their desire to obey and submit, right? It's like cutting our own feet right out from underneath us. If we use our authority in ungodly ways, if we're too bossy with it, then in the end, we're not helping create a mindset of submission and obedience. We're actually creating that spirit of rebellion. So we have to be very careful with the authority that we've been given, either as parents or as bosses or as any, in any role of governing authority. All right, so let's talk about submission. With the last couple minutes we have left here, I want to flip this around again. Um, that's a bit about rebellion, but that's not really meant to be our focus, right? I, want, I don't want you to walk away thinking about rebellion. I want you to think about submission, which is the flip side of rebellion. It's what God is calling forth in us. Here's what it is. Here's how I define it. Again, on the basis of Romans 13 and many other scriptures as well. Submission is a righteous attitude or action that reflects trust in God and the willingness to honor and defer to those whom God has given authority over us, which produces the fruit of obedience. Okay? And here's the the key point regarding that definition. It's the willingness to honor and defer to those whom God has given authority over us. So, even if a person in authority asks you to do something you don't want to do, unless it's wrong or immoral, unless it's flat-out disobedient to God, who is the highest authority, you should be willing to submit your own desire to the desire of the person in authority. That's how this is meant to work, right? Because it's an act of honor to say, not as I will, but as you will. I want you to think about the supreme example of submission. Do you know what it comes from, where it is? Matthew 26, 39, the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he went to the cross. This is, in my mind, the supreme example of submission that you will find in the Bible. Do you think Jesus wanted to go to the cross? No. Do you think he was looking forward to that experience? No. It was scary. He knew it was going to be incredibly painful, incredibly difficult. He didn't want to do it. How do we know this? Matthew 26, 39. What does he say? Praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's at all possible, take this cup from me. I don't want to have to do this. But, Lord, not my will, thy will be done. That's submission. That's the heart of submission right there. Jesus said, I don't want to do this, God but I'm willing to do it if it's what you want me to do because I'm submitting my will to your will for me, right? So the motivator for submission 
is to keep in mind that it unlocks for us the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Do you trust that God's will for you is better than your will for yourself? That's the bottom line question here. Submission keeps us in the will of God, which honors him, serves his purposes, and glorifies his name. And Jesus was always, in every circumstance, completely and perfectly submitted to the will of the Father. He never did a rebellious thing in his life. Rebellion against God, that is, right? Now, we could talk about examples of what you might call something rebellious, like turning over the tables in the temple. Was that rebellion or submission on the part of Jesus? The answer is yes. He was being rebellious against the temple authorities because he was in submission to God, who was a greater authority. Right? So the only circumstance when rebellion is justified is when it's in obedience and submission to God himself. He is the highest authority in every circumstance. And so if he instructs you to do something, then you do it, even if your boss told you not to. Okay? So Romans 13, 5, Paul says, It is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. What he's saying is when you walk in submission, when you live in submission, when you respect and honor those in authority over you, as long as they're asking you to do things that are reasonable, good, and godly, then your, your conscience will be clean and clear if you do what they say. 1 Peter 2 is another example of this, but it begins to raise the, the question of when God's authority trumps the authority of mankind. 1 Peter 2, 15 and 16, It is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. I love that because it, it's, such a, it's like an oxymoron, this, the, the verbiage that Peter uses here. Live as free people who are God's slaves. Right? The, the point Peter's trying to make is that the greatest freedom you'll have in life is when you're living as a slave to Christ. Isn't that ironic? The more submitted you are to Christ, the more free you are. That's the bottom line here. Acting as a slave to God is what actually and surprisingly leads to the greatest freedom. It brings us freedom from fear of punishment by the one in authority, ultimate authority, God himself. It brings us freedom from a guilty conscience. It brings us freedom from any hindrance to our witness for Christ. But most of all, it brings us freedom from the development of a rebellious spirit and from the enemy's control in our lives. I love this article that we were asked to read as part of the perspectives class a few years ago. It was entitled, Prayer, An Act of Rebellion Against the Status Quo. Right? The idea, again, is that whenever you're submitted to God, you're rebelling against the world and the devil. Whenever you're rebelling against God, you're submitted to the world and the devil. 
So we have to understand that genuine freedom from the biblical perspective is not merely the freedom to make our own choices and do what we want to do. That is not free by God's definition because that will only bring you into captivity to your own selfishness. No genuine freedom comes from doing only what you want to do. Genuine freedom is freedom from the controlling power of selfishness and sin. Freedom from the devil's influence, which is freedom to serve God wholeheartedly. I heard a great quote at the Vineyard Conference we attended a few weeks ago. Uh, one of the speakers named Mike Pilavachi, he's an Anglican priest from uh, England, was talking about the love languages. And I thought he had a brilliant insight about this. He said, you know, there's lots of talk about the human love languages and how we express love to one another as human beings. And then he posed a question. He said, do you know what God's love language is? It's obedience. It's obedience. When we submit ourselves to his authority and we walk in obedience, we are expressing our love for God in the best way. Now, there are times, as I've indicated, and I'll close with this, there are times when we have to honor God and submit to God and rebel against a person's authority at the same time. And this is where it's tricky, right? When is it okay and when isn't it okay to act in rebellion against a human authority? And, you know, that's a difficult question to answer sometimes, and yet sometimes it's not so difficult. And I'll close with this example from Daniel chapter 6, right? You all know the story of Daniel. I think it's a fantastic illustration of this principle. Verses 7 to 10, Daniel 6. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce that decree so that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue this decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Where did he get his authority? From God. But was he exercising that authority in a godly way? No, he wasn't. Now, when Daniel learned that this decree had been published, He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. So, question. Was this an act of rebellion by Daniel or an act of submission? Yes. Both. Right? He was rebelling against the king because he was submitted to God. And he recognized that no human authority could tell him what to do if it was against what God had told him to do. So that's the basic principle at play here. We have to always remember that God is the supreme authority. Every other person in authority has received that authority from him and is meant to use it in a good and godly way. If they don't, 
and they ask you to do something under their authority that is wrong, then you have an obligation to submit to the authority of God instead. All right, our time is up. Let's pray.